Welcome to Rec Talks, a podcast dedicated to the ever-evolving world of rec tech and financial regulations. My name is Klaus Christensen, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Know Your Customer. We're an award-winning rec tech provider specialized in corporate client onboarding, KYC, and anti-money laundering process digitization. Today, it's my great pleasure to welcome Morgan Tirigi as my guest. Based in Singapore, Morgan is co-founder and CEO of IncomeLand. IncomeLand provides an alternative trade finance platform, which delivers factoring and supply chain finance solutions to companies globally. A mechanical engineer and HEC Paris graduate, Morgan is a serial entrepreneur and has established various companies in Japan, mainland China, Hong Kong, Bangladesh, Malaysia, and Singapore. Morgan, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Klaus. So let's jump right in. In our introduction, we briefly touched on income land, but I would love to dig a bit deeper. Can you tell me more about what income land does and what market gap it aims to address? Well, Incomeland is a uh, Singaporean fintech. We are specialized in cross-border receivables financing, which is effectively factoring. We buy receivables at a discount and we get them financed on a marketplace, which is our, our funding uh, solution on the fintech. And we get paid uh, at maturity onto the Incomeland platform by the buyers. So we have uh, receivables that are financed from multiple jurisdictions, China, India, Bangladesh, UAE, Singapore, Hong Kong, and other countries. Typically, these are customers that are not working with LC, letters of credit. They are working an open account, 30 days to 120 days. They get their money faster at a discount. This is something, factoring is something that's been around for, for a long time, for centuries. We are making that approach available to a multitude of institutional and accredited investors onto a marketplace approach where they can purchase a portion of the entire receivables through the platform. Uh, on the other side, we are providing uh, a diversified access to financing to sellers in, like I said, different jurisdictions uh, in the world, although we are very specialized in Asian countries. Very interesting. Just a follow-on question there for me and for the listeners who might not know the space so well. Could you contrast your approach with the established kind of letters of credit financing? When you use credit in trade, you have basically two approaches. One is to trust. The other one is not to trust. If you trust, then you work on open account. I send my goods out and you will pay me at 60, 90 days, whatever we agree. But fundamentally, I have no guarantee of payment. It's just based on the relationship I have with you. And typically, this is something you, you wouldn't start with. You would wait before getting in this type of uh, payment term, because although there is credit insurance and other mechanisms to, to protect yourself in the event of a, of a non-payment, this requires quite a bit of trust and a good relationship with the, the other side. A letter of credit is a situation where you do not trust. You send your goods out and to send your goods out and even before acknowledging an order, you will receive a letter of credit, which is a, a bank agreement with a, a bank guarantee in behind. So it's really the bank that's uh, based on certain conditions that you comply with when you ship out your goods the bank will say, yes, I will pay you if you fulfill these requirements. 
So you are getting from day one a guarantee of payment provided you meet with certain criteria and, and uh, requirements. They're very complementary. So for me to understand, you would finance the time period it takes the uh, buyer to actually settle an invoice that you already have out for the, the supplier. That's correct. After shipments, whatever amount against shipping documents, we pay upon receipt of compliant documentation. And 60, 90 days later, we get paid by the buyer. For a small startup, for a scale-up, for any young company, it's always a challenge to work with long payment periods um, of larger companies. And uh, that must be a, a giant uh, market opening there. Great. Before this chat, I have done a bit of research and come across something that I found particularly interesting. You say that your vision is for a world where cross-border trade finance is highly accessible and safe to invest in. Can you tell me a bit more about that? From your experience, what are the challenges and what steps are needed to achieve such a vision? It is indeed a, a very old product. The trade finance, financing receivables is nothing new. The banks have done it for decades, and I think it's been around for centuries. Uh, this is something that was around well before our grandparents were, were there. So this is nothing new. What is new is really having investors getting access to it on a more common basis. I mean, there have been funds uh, over the past years that were into it, but it's getting more and more common now for people to step into it and even trickling down to high net worth individuals potentially. And in, in, in certain cases, it may be sold to less refined investors as well. So this is there is a, a general education of the public that is currently taking place and has started over the past few years. Uh, the waves, the fintech waves, That has started, it could be, there, there have been fintechs uh, that were set up 20 years ago, but there have been more recently. So there is an education process to make it available for different types of investors. Now, uh, to make it safe is where I believe the technology comes in. And this is something that will be ongoing even for the, the, the coming years because it can always, anything can always be perfected. I think the technology is there to help us verify through access to various databases, the veracity of the different players. Are they really existing? Is a company giving you a receivable, having issues, litigations, anything like this? So it's really about all these checks, all this KYC and AML that technology enables you to do in a more automated fashion than we could do it maybe 20 or 30 years ago. I love how... This is where the companies connect, uh, that you also work on that technology angle to make uh, things more accessible. That is indeed something also that uh, I found astonishing about your company, because what you also say, you drive financial inclusion. And how do you do that? I, the way I see it for the financial inclusion is really relying on the type of business model that we're looking at. And I think part of our DNA is doing non-recourse um, financing. And non-recourse financing is something that is off balance sheet. Again, this is not something that is new. It's been around for quite some time. But this is something that I see as being very complementary to the approach of banks. And when you're a small company, this is something that is extremely crucial. Our business model relies on people having good buyers And ultimately saying, if you're selling to a world-class buyer without giving names, 
your business may be growing, but for you to grow, you will have to give payment terms. It's not going to be like the first order down payment and payment uh, before shipment. Uh, so that's a prerequisite to grow one's business. The non-recourse model is a typical approach where it enables someone, a company with a growing business and good operational skills to have access to uh, a larger degree of financing which is something different that banks are doing. Banks are typically doing something that is on balance sheet. And the problem is when you have growing orders, your balance sheet is only realized once everything has been carried out. So the bank really typically comes in at a later stage, which doesn't mean it's bad. It's just a different approach. And I see this type of uh, business model as being very complementary to what banks are doing, where uh, an SME could jump between non-recourse and recourse and typically have access to both. And the non-recourse being something they can have access to, uh, it gives them the possibility when they don't have access to bank financing, lines of credit and so forth, to start with this type of financing and therefore make it more inclusive for a lot of SMEs. That's fantastic. Also, you seem to have quite a broad geographical approach and most banks and most financing solutions are much more local, much more specialized. From a purely operational point of view, how do you mitigate the money laundering and other risks involved in doing business with companies in more remote parts of the world? Well, it's really about finding the right databases in which to tap into. Of course, you have the traditional approach that is always, uh, to a certain extent, part of our onboarding process where we want to know uh, who our customer is. Hence, the traditional way of doing KYC, understanding what is the motive um, behind the transactions, why they're taking place, why financing is being required. But uh, stepping into a new uh, jurisdiction for us revolves around the databases we can have access to and how we can check that the people we are dealing with are what they are claiming to be. And especially in a period like now where COVID really makes traveling extremely difficult, this is when technology has a, a stronger role to play. So it really revolves that technology angle, not denying the traditional approach. I don't think you can necessarily, at present at least, rely 100% just on technology. I think you need to really know your, your, the person you're dealing with. And sometimes psychology is also important when, when facing someone. But the technology is really there to pave the way and open, open up the way, making sure that I would say to 80, 90%, you have what you think you, you should be dealing with. Do you go any further on um, verifying the veracity of the invoice that is financed or the goods are actually shipped, that sort of thing? And do you use technology there? Well, absolutely. Uh, I mean, we signed a partnership recently with Bolero. I mean, for, for EBLs, uh, Digital Bills of Lading, uh, which are a, a typical document that we, we check in our um, processes. And this is why we look at cross-border transactions because a bill of lading is a third-party document that is linked to the, um, to the invoices. Uh, so that enables us to see if something's on the sea, going, following the right route. And there's a lot of automation that is possible around that documentation. So this is really, I would say, even more than an invoice. For me, a bill of lading is more important um, the invoice almost sort of comes a second 
But when you're looking at money laundering, for example, you do want to look at the uh, the invoice um, pricing that is taking place onto it. I mean, money laundering, one way of doing it is overpricing the invoice and just uh, having money rerouted to um, other jurisdictions afterwards and we wouldn't see it. This, these attempts are things we've seen in the past. And although you rely on technology, like I said, to 80, 90%, a pair of eyes or several at the end help you get the final dot, I would say, uh, on, on the transaction. That's also our approach at KYC to combine the power of a technology to get your information fast with someone who actually decides in the end and uh, has a, a bigger view on the case. Great. Uh, from your point of view, what has been the impact of growing public spending during the pandemic? We've all seen that, especially in large markets like uh, the US and UK and Europe on uh, the global trade finance market? Well, I think what is to be foreseen uh, at a macroeconomic level is probably an increase of, uh, uh, of goods going around the world. So goods going around the world for certain type of industries, I mean, we could be looking at the PPE, uh, for example, market, uh, personal protective equipment, where there has been a growing amount of spending done for, for obvious reasons over the past month. I think this is one thing that has uh, increased uh, the global trade and potentially for some other products as well, uh, first necessity goods at least. Um, this is something that along the line, down the line, really requires additional financing because, again, a growing amount of orders for a factory is putting a lot of pressure for them in terms of working capital and a non-recourse working capital solution um, is well suited for situations like this. I would agree there. And I think uh, global trade has been incredibly resilient in this uh, challenging for us personally time, uh, as, as evidenced in the recent events there with the tanker stuck in the Suez Canal and uh, all the trouble in, uh, in the U.S. ports that can't serve all the, uh, the ships fast enough. Great. Well, I have one last question. If tomorrow you woke up and somehow you had become the global financial regulator, what would be the first thing that you would do? And of course, why? That's a lot of power and responsibilities. Uh, I would have this. <laughs> a lot of work also, I think. I think if I look at the financial markets, um, I think one thing that is lacking, and maybe again, going back on technology, there, there could be solutions around using technology, blockchain potentially, I think an increase of, a, of exchange of information between financiers could avoid quite a lot of the issues that we've seen, um, at least that we've seen in Asia, where if banks have been communicating or able to exchange information in a discreet manner without breaching confidentiality and privacy clauses, um, that would have enabled them to prevent certain issues by having people uh, over leveraging certain books by going at the same time through multiple banks, for example, and, um, and preventing certain um, bubbles. That is what I would really uh, emphasize a lot of work on. I think one of the weaknesses of the financial industry and financiers is by nature, financiers are very discreet. Uh, we don't like publicity. And uh, in certain situations, it's, uh, that mindset may not be the right mindset to prevent fraudsters And, and not to say that people should uh, just work on open book because obviously they're, they're, confidentiality is crucial. But having technology, typically blockchain, to exchange 
basic information without revealing commercial secrets, I think would be a, a very good point to start with. That's very interesting. I do detect some sort of pattern, actually, in the responses to this particular last question that I asked all my uh, <laughs> guests. It is to find that balance between privacy and the changing technology on the one hand and uh, what you could do if you had more open communications and, and more view of the whole picture. That will always be difficult, I'd say, and, and uh, we'll, we'll always struggle a bit to find the right balance there as societies decide or find their ways through these issues. Well, Morgan, this has been excellent. Thank you so much. I've learned something about trade finance. All the best for your business. Thank you. All the best to you too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rec Talks. My name is Klaus Christensen, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of award-winning RecTech provider, Know Your Customer. If you liked the episode, please subscribe to the whole series and leave us a review. And if you'd like to connect with us, suggest a guest or a topic for an upcoming episode, please send us a message at info at knowyourcustomer.com or visit knowyourcustomer.com slash rectalks.